expertise in this particular technology can solve this global problem. So our mission is not to develop the technology, it's to make the world more connected. On this episode, we'll talk with a startup founder who's working on the next generation of wireless data transmission. The fact is that internet access has become a fundamental need in the 21st century. And it's also become a component of social equity and access, right? Because people living in rural and remote areas without affordable internet just simply don't have equal access to knowledge and opportunities today. Diana Gazmina's new startup, ELV, has developed millimeter wave amplifiers manufactured at scale which can remove these barriers and unlock access to fiber-like internet speeds. She'll talk to us about her journey from being a science researcher to raising capital and launching a startup. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Brett. Thanks for having me. You bet. Where are you today? Where are you joining us from? I'm joining from Davis, California. Davis, California, which is about maybe two hours east of Silicon Valley. That's about right. So, Diana, tell us, I guess, first of all, tell us the background on yourself, and then tell us a little bit about the startup. I have a PhD in mechanical and aerospace engineering, and I've been working mm -hmm. on lots of deep tech stuff as a researcher mm -hmm. at Slack, the Particle Accelerator Slack, and then before mm -hmm. that at UC Davis, and then... One beautiful morning decided to start a company. And so company Elv focuses on making millimeter wave amplifiers. And they are part of the infrastructure that is needed to build interconnected worlds. So me and you are joining here remotely and many people do that today. And so to support that, you need very, very fast connections. And Across the world, even in the United States, the infrastructure is not there quite yet to have this, yeah. to support this hyper-connected world. Yeah. So we are making hardware that makes wireless connectivity uh, seem like you are connected via fiber. So that is what ELV does. So here in the Bay Area these days, if you say that you used to work at Slack, many people think of the real-time communications platform that is now owned by Salesforce. But in your case, you're talking about Slack, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, or what used to be called the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. All right. Yeah, it's the beautiful long building that goes under 280. Right. Um, and they accelerate electrons to very, very fast speeds yeah. to make basic science possible. And sort of a lot of discoveries comes from Slack and places like Slack. So speaking of acceleration, so Diana, I am old enough that I remember connecting to the internet using a 300 baud modem, and we have accelerated connection speeds a bit since then. Now, most people are on gigabit connections, and we kind of expect that to be in our lives wirelessly, just kind of in the air wherever we go. <laughs> That's right. And then we get very upset when it's not there, just a few blocks away. <laughs> So tell us, so explain to us how your startup is fixing this problem. So, well, you're talking about gigabit links. And so that's sort of your primary phone connection to whatever the network is available. So mm -hmm. your phone needs to have a good quality connection to the network, but then your network at the location you're connecting needs to have also a good quality connection. So any location that has a bad quality connection disrupts the entire network, unless you have mm -hmm. some sort of backup plan or that particular connection is good. 
So it's fairly easy if you are somewhere near a fiber line and you can connect to that network. That's a really fast connection. But if you are a little bit further away from that, then that's that's where you run into trouble. And fiber is very expensive to lay. You know, it could be on the order of 50 grand per mile, depending on mm. exactly where you're doing. So very expensive. And so there is a huge benefit of being connected to a wireless network. And there's definitely space-based and terrestrial-based networks that are being developed today. And so what we are doing is making devices that allow you to make a very fast connection from one post to another post or from that mm-hmm. one post all the way up to space. And the connections we can make are more like 10, maybe as much as 100 gigabit per second. So very fast connections. So you can use those for backhaul, so to support that network such that, you know, you and I can, you know, have a, a very fast connection nearby if we are not somewhere near, near a fiber line. And so, as you know, US is focused a lot on developing this network and taking it to sort of places that are, have been hard to be connected. And certainly a lot of people have, during the pandemic times, moved to very beautiful places to work. <laughs> that was the silver lining of the pandemic, is suddenly many of us could work from anywhere. Right. But you can only do that if you are on a good connected line, right? And so yeah. that network is going to take time to develop and certainly for it to be fast, you know, you'll, you need you need hardware, surprisingly. <laughs> you actually need hardware. Software doesn't quite solve that problem. Software helps a lot, but okay. um, you still need actual boxes that provide you that connection. Last time I checked, software still has to run on hardware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it certainly empowers hardware to do a lot of amazing things. So you right. know, you, you start with hardware, and then you build software, and then at some point you have to go back and say, "Oh, I need new hardware to push further." Right. See, right. so you, you sort of touched on the fact that there are multiple links involved in kind of an ordinary internet connection. So right now, I'm sitting in my home office. So my computer is talking over Wi-Fi to my home Wi-Fi router. And my home Wi-Fi router is talking to a connection from my cable company. And my cable company is talking to some backbone somewhere who may be broadcasting my signal up to a satellite and bouncing it off of a satellite down to some receiver somewhere else in the world, which then connects to a backbone provider, which then connects to a local telephone company, which then connects to a local Wi-Fi router, right? So there's there's a lot of links in there. And, you know, and we have the proverbial um, problem of the chain is only as strong as the weakest link in the chain, right? Yeah, yes. So explain to us kind of specifically where on that chain you are working. Well... <laughs> I guess it's a good business in that we can be in any one of those locations. So yeah. that's the beauty of what we are building. I mean, effectively, anything that you would broadcast over the air, every spot that receives and then transmits to the next location is where our amplifier can live, which okay. means we need to make a lot of them, right? If we are to build up the network. And your, and your amplifier is a is for wireless. Is that correct? Correct. It is for the wireless network. So you know we could be on the end of a fiber line, right? If you're trying mm-hmm. to broadcast away from the fiber, we could. Mm-hmm. There has also been interest in installing this in homes, because as you might have noticed, your Wi-Fi is not always as great if you have lots of visitors. 
right? Yeah. Because now you suddenly have a high demand and there's just that connection. Data rate is not big enough to support multiple users, right? So yeah. I was, when the pandemic began and uh, Stanford switched my Stanford course over to uh, Zoom on my first night of that quarter, I suddenly realized that the class was a disaster because my internet connection was challenged in some way. And I told everybody to hang on, I told all the students to hang on a second. And I walked around the house and find, found out that my wife and two daughters were each streaming their own movie while I was trying to teach at Stanford via Zoom. <laughs> there you go. See, you, you experienced it. So yeah, it's not something we have pursued heavily yet, but we definitely have heard a strong interest in deploying um, our the solution that we are focused on at in homes or in factories or in businesses yeah. that you have that high data rate wireless connection sort of via your, you know, in your local network. That's a little better it, than Wi-Fi or actually much, much better than Wi-Fi. And who are your customers today? So our initial focus is actually on space-based uh, mm -hmm. networks just because mm -hmm. they're a little bit more price tolerant. It's something that they have worked with for decades, this particular technology. So they understand it, they understand it, you know, it costs this amount and we're not quite at the price point where we can deploy in a terrestrial mm -hmm. network or home network because we're not quite there with price. But even to access the space-based network, we had to drop the price down significantly. So we've already mm -hmm. demonstrated about a factor of 10 um, cost reduction, so sort of from where we started. But yeah, initial focus, mm -hmm. space-based networks. So these space-based networks then would be people like Starlink, uh, AT&T, um, I don't know, T-Mobile, I don't know. Yeah, lots of people, Intel sats, lots of people have, you know, have, right? And Hughes is well known, right? You see it on people's homes. Hughes, um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, there's internet, space-based internet has been available for, for a while now. It just hasn't been really fast. So that's, that's sort of our key advantage is making that internet connection much faster. Right. So, so your specific, specific value that you deliver to a space-based provider is wireless transmitters that are faster and cheaper, easier to implement? Correct. Yeah, because okay. the space-based networks are growing really fast. So, you know, now they need amplifiers in large quantities. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the price comes in. Very hard to build a large network without an affordable amplifier. And so that's first. And second is the high data rates that our technology offers. So between those two things, that's the big selling point. Yeah. And how, how did you come up with this startup idea? How did it begin? Well, you know, you start hearing customers complain <laughs> about certain solutions being unavailable. So in my particular case, as a researcher, I give talks about the technology I was working on. You know, and my talks were like, oh, look, this is amazing performance. It does whatever, this power or like this efficiency. And, you know, and I would attend conferences where you would interact with industry as well. So those are, let's say, my customers today, you know, and the feedback I would get is like, you're doing this amazing work, but we will never use your technology now in network. Right. Which I was like, what am I doing here? Why am I spending my time on 
effectively building record holding devices, you know, one at a time that not many people care about. I mean, they care in a sense that it's cool, but not care in a sense that it actually makes a difference in the world, right? Which is yeah. what you would yeah. do if you're trying to build a company. You have to make something that makes a difference. And so, you know, that was a nice first introduction to, you know, talking to customers and understanding like what is actual problem that they need solving. And so since my research focus was actually on like materials and manufacturing, and those are the two things that sort of drive the cost of making anything. And I was like, well, hey, if the problem is actually cost and access to a volume of these devices, I need to focus on something else. And it's a, it's actually a really hard thing to do in a, um, as a researcher. We actually just tried to publish a paper on saying, mm -hmm. hey, this is a cheaper amplifier and it got rejected because it's like nobody in the research world wants to know that you built something cheaper or you can build it. Uh, interesting. So hence the, I was like, well, this has to be a company then. It has to be a company that solves this particular problem and gets people access to ultra fast wireless network that's not there today. So that was sort of the, the, the key starting point. And then, you know, I was like, well, I don't know how to run a company. <laughs> so I had to spend a little bit of time learning how to do that. So it's interesting then that the, as a researcher, you developed the, some technology that would solve a problem. But then you realized that now the problem was that there was no way to manufacture it efficiently and effectively uh, in order to commercialize the technology. And so then you set out to develop a way to commercialize the technology by creating an effective me method of manufacturing it. That, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I, I always preach that most great startups begin with a founder who notices a problem we're solving. So it's interesting that you, you kind of found a problem within a problem. First of all, you found a problem, which was bandwidth speeds. And then you found another problem, which was, you know, manufacturing this technology. <laughs> right. Because building the bandwidth speeds with an amplifier that costs a million dollars is not quite useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm not yeah, solving the yeah. problem. <laughs> right. So talk to us a little bit about the funding process for you as a as an entrepreneur. How did you uh, how did you go out and pitch pitch your startup, find funders? How did all that work for you? Well, first I invested into the company myself. So a lot of the initial work, design work and patents and sort of mm -hmm. getting initial consultants was self-funded because mm -hmm. you you sort of needed to have a base to to get it kick started and then started to build a network of advisors that have built companies before which was sort mm -hmm. of the first introduction to the you know how do you build a startup and where do you start fundraising mm -hmm. and um, meeting you in the class First, and then at Fourthly, definitely helped prepare for talking to investors. And then it actually went, I think, fairly easily on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, you never know enough when you start. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a complicated process and you're dealing mm -hmm. with professionals that certainly know no matter what much more, right? It's, this is what they do every day. But generally speaking, given the size of the problem we were solving and the solution that we had and sort of the team expertise that was put together by then, you know, it definitely helped uh, talking to the initial investors and we had, you know, interest right away in what we were doing and sort of we kept perfecting the pitch. And so, you know, it ended up, we finished this pre-seed round last summer and we just finished our seed round 
you know, a couple of months ago. And so getting ready for Series A. So fundraising is definitely a constant part of running a startup. But I think I would say probably not. It's an important one, maybe not the most important one. I think it's most important one is focusing on your customers. So we've also Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time working with customers and seeing what kind of funding we can get from that whether it's prepayments or some other way of collaborating on solving their problem. And that's that certainly is better for the company, both from investors' perspective, but also from dilution perspective. Right, for sure. And your investors so far have been strategic investors, meaning are they, you know, other companies in the space or we have not brought in any strategic investors yet. Okay. We are thinking of doing that for Series A, but haven't mm-hmm. committed that to that completely. I think making sure that, you know, the strategic interests are well aligned on both sides, I think is important, which is what we've been working on. But we, we have enough interest that, you know, we'll we'll have to decide whether that's, you know, useful or not. Because once once you have strategic investors on on the line, they want not just an investment in the company, they want other things as well, right? So they want your technology eventually, right? Right, exactly. So there's benefits there in some ways, and then, you know, just cautions, cautionary tales as well. For sure. And how, how big is your team now? Oh, I think we are at 15, 15. employees, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and like a handful of consultants, you know, we still rely on consultants to some degree. Sure. So, uh, and that's heavily weighted toward uh, engineering? We have two non-engineers today, and then we have three production assistants, which are not quite engineers yet either. So production assistants is like someone who will work with, you know, on actually assembling the products. Got it. So you're very much still kind of in the R&D mode as a company where you're focused more on developing products than you are on marketing them at this moment. Well... We often say that our product is the process. What does that mean? Well, so we're developing the process that makes an amplifier that's yeah. low cost. And so that's what our actual secret sauce is, the process, not product per se. And that was part of the big difference in the way you think about the amplifiers in the past. You know, it's like... People would design one special one for this particular customer and it would only work with this particular customer's uh, network or solution that Mm -hmm. they're looking for. And so we have standard products that our process outputs. And it actually, the process is flexible enough. We can make a whole number of different types of products that would support a variety of needs, but we focus on the standard ones. And so the process is what we are developing still. But the nice thing about it is that Every week we make an amplifier because we're testing the process. <laughs> so we Got are it. in a way in a production mode just because we're developing the process. And we've done a demonstration what a few weeks ago of five devices per week. It was equivalent of as if we were making five, you know, and we're starting to think about the factory build out probably sometime next year. It is unique in that we are in an R&D mode, but an R&D mode, not of the product because the product works. It's of the process that makes it low cost. Interesting. So then that kind of begs an interesting question, which is so entrepreneurs are always worried about how they can protect their IP, how they can protect their intellectual property. And so in your case, you said that the, you know, the process you're developing really is your secret sauce. 
And so how do you how do you think about protecting that? Well, a process is a little bit easier to protect than a product. So when mm-hmm. we think about IP strategy, certainly, you know, the designs that maybe make the process easier is what we effectively protect such that when, you know, your product is out there and someone inevitably takes it apart, you know, if they look at it, they might come up with a design, which is what we protect, but it's unclear that it'd be that easy to actually come up with a process and how to make that design work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I could, I could reverse engineer the product, right? But reverse engineering the product doesn't necessarily help me understand the pro- the yeah. process. And so yeah. you'll be stuck yeah, with yeah. the expensive approach potentially if you don't understand all the others. Right. Yeah. And so right. and it comes down all the way to the materials we use, right? It's, we have some fancy materials that are really hard to make, but they give us enormous advantage. And so that's, those are the kinds of things that you kind of have to build up around your technology. And of course, I mean, ideally you patent as much as possible, but it's expensive to do. So, you know, we are still working on understanding what's the right balance of patenting versus not. Because when you patent, you also disclose what you're doing. <laughs> so, right, 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 right. That's that's the irony of it. Yeah. You get protection, but you get protection in return for disclosing to the world how you're doing it. <laughs> exactly. So it's, so, yeah. but then, right, if you are running a team and you start giving your products to customers and, you know, you're hiring and there's different people that come to work for you, there's always concerns on, you know, there will be technology leaving. And so and the only solution right. to that is just be faster and innovate or continue to come up with new ideas, right? Right, right. right. So Diana, you I mean, you've been on an interesting journey from having, you know, been a researcher. And I presume that, you know, when you were getting your PhD, the reason you were getting your PhD was that you envisioned a career in in research and academics, right? And so you've been on a journey from that to deciding to create a startup to going out and raising seven figures of funding from investors and building a 15 plus person team and talking to big global customers. So that's a pretty amazing journey. But what were the hard parts for you personally? What are the hard parts? Well, certainly talking to the big companies is always hard. You know, they're often live in a different world and um, see the world differently than a startup. So that's definitely a challenge. Certainly had to bring help. And, you know, one recognized that that's something that, you know, we will continue to have to do because our customers will be big. So how do you communicate with companies that are much, 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 much larger than you. So that that has been a, definitely a type of challenge that I'm sure we'll continue having. And then I think building the team is always a fun challenge, right? So you're trying to recruit best of the best and, you know, trying to tell them to leave their great, reliable workplaces to <laughs> come to this crazy journey with you. That can right. be a challenge that can take a bit of my time. I mean, I'm I'm ambitious in that I try to recruit the best people. So we've been pretty successful so far. So that's, you know, that takes a a lot of my time. And then keeping the team focused, you know, I think the word focus is probably used, you know, a number of times a week because there is a thing to recognize that you probably have a thousand, maybe thousands of problems to solve that you can solve. And so, but you really only need to focus on 10 And so making sure the team knows what are the 10 that they need to focus on. And I think that is maybe the easier part, but also, but helping them not worry about the other 
thousands that are still on the list and sort of cope with the fact that, well, some problems will just go unsolved for a while and it's okay because otherwise we can't build the company if we try to go and solve all of the problems. So keeping so keeping the team focused on kind of the 10 problems that matter right Correct. now has been a big part of yep, your challenge. That, that certainly has yeah. been a big part of the challenge. I mean, and then just deciding to start a company, so I'm just walking back from the comment you made, it was certainly a challenge. It took, you know, I, I mean, after I started it, I was like, I should have done this a year ago. <laughs> I feel like I'm behind before I started, you know, because you walk away from a place that's, you know, secure, reliable, right? You're still having fun. You love what you're doing. It's, you know, it's all the all the things that are good on the plate and, and you go into heavy uncertainty and lots of risk. And so that's right. a, certainly a personal challenge that, you know, I had to wake up one day and be like, I'm going to do it. So part of what I love about your venture, Diana, is that, you know, it's, it's also a very clear problem on the commercial level. Right. That on commercial level, it's, you know, how do we, you know, all these different broadband providers want to get more efficient and effective at uh, selling broadband services. But there's also a pretty significant social equity component to your venture as well, right? In the sense that, you know, today, if you talk about social equity, that internet access, bandwidth access is a big deal, right? There are many parts of the world where um, their opportunities are limited simply by the fact that a lot of individuals don't have the kind of bandwidth that we have here. And so I think that's pretty cool that you're working on something that is both a really big, interesting commercial problem and also you don't have to invent uh, a social justice angle for this because there's a you know there's a real social justice angle built into it but <laughs> right i mean i think we and you have talked about this in the past right it's it's an essential need that's just as important as electricity and water i mean that's just the fact right. today and and i think the team specifically that is what attracts the team the most to this particular company is that now this expertise in this particular technology can solve this global problem. So our mission is not to develop the technologies, is to make the world more connected, right? That is our mission. And so we, right. you know, we have we take these very skilled, highly knowledgeable people and apply their amazing minds to something that's very hard to solve. So that's right. So it ends up making um, very easy to motivate. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Right. So you find that to be an advantage in terms of recruiting talent and also in terms of uh, kind of focusing talent, the fact that there's a, you know, there's a legitimate ESG component uh, to what you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's also a way to consider other opportunities. You know, our technology solves other problems. This is not the only one you can use it to solve. Uh, but today, this is the biggest problem on our list of problems we can solve. Certainly good for the company to know we can go and attack other problems. But I mean, that's how we evaluate various, whether it's different customers or other partnership opportunities. You know, do they solve our key problem? Do they help us solve our key problem? Right, right. So Diana, last question for you before I let you get back to saving the world. What advice would you give other founders today? So you've You've been on this journey. It's been a been a difficult journey sometimes, but a worthwhile journey, and it's been successful. And that you've raised raised significant money, built a great team. And what have you learned in that process that you would kind of pass on to other uh, other startup founders? What I don't maybe hear as much about, which we focus a lot on, is the human factor. And I mean, me and you are talking about this <laughs> quite a bit already, so I'm just going to re highlight it. Yeah, is that 
companies are built by people, by amazing people. Okay. And so when the world problems are also solved by people. And so empowering people and providing a good working environment and sort of giving them whatever is necessary for them to do their job well is something, you know, you as a founder and CEO is responsible for, right? So you're not just, you know, right. solving problems, but you're also empowering these other people to actually help you do that. So that's, yeah, as you people build teams and something I've run into, people think about that, you know, in startups, it's this, you know, everyday grind and, you know, you can't take time off and mm -hmm. things like that, I think are kind of give startups maybe a really bad flavor. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if whether it's necessary, it is certainly, you know, part of life. But I think if it's talked about and people are prepared for it, and there is other ways to sort of offset that, you, you can actually build really strong teams that love what they do. And they will come and work really hard on helping the world solve that problem. So that's, yeah, focus on yeah. the people. They're, they're the ones that make it happen. Focus on the people. They're the ones that yeah. make it happen. It's a perfect, perfect note to close on. <laughs> Diana, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Brad. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks.